0: Hi, I'm Victor Milligan.
1: And I'm Jennifer Isabella.
0: Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And on the phone with us today is Laura Ketzel, Vice President and Group Director of Forrester, to discuss the current state of and expected state of Brexit. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. So Brexit has been a bit of a long and winding road. Um, In Q4, UK growth was 0.2%. That was lower than expected. And we continue to hear the danger signals coming from just a sense of business uncertainty. So you're over there, Laura. What is the state of affairs as we look at extending the Brexit to October 31st?
2: So while we're all pretty glad over here that Friday, April 12th, did not feature a no-deal Brexit and sudden exit of the UK from the European Union with no transition period, where we are now is that through to Halloween, we are still in the position of the UK and the EU figuring out the terms of and agreeing to the terms of the UK's withdrawal from the European Union. So whatever brave face everyone's liking to put on this thing essentially kick the can down the road for another six months. And so there are another six months of uncertainty for businesses about how the UK will exit and what will happen and so on.
0: And this has already taken a chunk out of some of the UK economies. Some very high-profile companies have announced they're going to pull out either headquarters or major operations from the UK in part or in whole because of Brexit. So the Brexit has already caused harm.
2: Yes, it's definitely caused a lot of companies to either reduce their footprint in the UK or move themselves entirely to places in the in the continental EU. So there's loads of examples, but Sony is moving its European headquarters. Panasonic's doing the same. You have GP Morgan Chase and a bunch of other U.S. financial companies moving a lot of their operations that used to be in London to Frankfurt and to Dublin and so on. Even Lloyd's of London is establishing an insurance company in Brussels. So there's definitely been a lot of movement because as many heads of various central banks have remarked over the years, the one thing businesses really dislike is uncertainty. And in the nearly three years now since the Brexit referendum, there's been virtually no certainty about what would happen. And you see that in the current situation. It is still really possible that on the 31st of October, the UK will actually exit the European Union without a deal of any kind, which will Create all the problems that we've been talking about in association with the No Deal Brexit for the last, you know, nearly three years. It's just moving them forward in time.
0: Yeah, and these are entities that have closely linked supply chains across Europe. So it's not as if it's just a company making an individual decision, but it's essentially how the supply chains and distribution work across the European continent. I mean, this is this has far-reaching implications, and you know, one of them was Airbus is is showing skepticism of keeping the wing business in the U.K. I mean, this is going to have large company effect and then big-time big, big time supply chain effect.
2: Absolutely, because in the current state, the U.K. is a full member of the European Union. So there are no customs checks, no tariff differences, no differences of any kind between the U.K. and France or the Netherlands or Germany or pick any other EU member. And so Airbus can bring its parts in for its wing business with zero customs checks and other kinds of potential delays. Whereas, depending on what the UK and the EU agree to do, whether the UK is part of a customs union or isn't, or you know whatever option they happen to choose, that will create some sorts of delays, certainly, because those checks will need to occur. To give you just a small example, because I happen to live in the Netherlands, the Dutch customs uh, agency has hired I think, 600 or something like that, new customs agents. And that's just one other EU member state because there's so much movement of goods between the Netherlands and the UK.
1: Can we take a step back and think about or state for the audience, like what are the big buckets or the major areas that companies should be thinking about, like that Brexit would impact? Obviously, talent, supply chain. What are the other piece parts, Laura, in, in your mind?
2: Sure. So there's absolutely talent from, a, you know, where are you going to get your talent for your operation in the UK? Because historically, you could, attract, you could attract people from all over the EU to the UK without any kind of visa process. You could move from Paris to London the same way you could move from Paris to Lyon. It required no more kind of changing. And uh, you can go with your passport and work tomorrow and all of this. And so, we talked about customs and supply chain. There's also travel. So, once there are kind of more checks, you know, if you go to any airport in the UK, you'll see there's a queue for European Union Nationals. And the people in that queue move move through a lot faster than the people in the all other nationalities queue. And so, you'll see different kinds of travel restrictions, potentially, between the UK and the EU member states. And so, the kinds of jobs people have where you live in Dublin and commute to London for Monday through Thursday, that may be a lot more irritating than it used to be, and so on and so forth. There's also a whole bunch of implications for consumer data and also just and also just technology in general. Because At the moment, the UK is an EU member state, so it's subject to the EU GDPR, just like any other EU member state is. And so you can transfer data from anywhere in the rest of the European Union to the UK because it's within the EU. After the UK is no longer an EU member state, it will have to be – in order for you to be able to do that the same way that you used to in the past, the UK will have to be declared – what is called adequate, which is sort of boring bureaucrat ease, but it's super important to the GDPR. And the EU is saying, okay, we're not going to make any decisions about GDPR adequacy for the UK until after the withdrawal is agreed, until after the UK actually leaves. And then we will make that decision. So if you're any company that currently transfers consumer data from anywhere else in the EU or employee data, from anywhere else in the, to the UK. The safe assumption is that you may no longer be able to do that when the UK exits. And certainly, if it exits without a deal abruptly, you will, in theory, that next day, be no longer able to transfer the data between those two places. So it would behoove everybody. I know no one's going to love hearing me say this. If you haven't finished your no-deal Brexit preparations, finish them, because there may still be no deal. And if you have your no-deal Brexit preparations done, including all the data transfer stuff and everything else, keep that binder handy because you may need it.
0: So one of the reasons ascribed to the Japanese stagnation was the the over-reliance on the Japanese consumer to prop up the Japanese economy. And as we look at the aftermath of Brexit, are we going to be in the same place where there's an over-reliance on the UK consumer at a time where it teeters near recession?
2: I think what you get there is a sort of not an, is the vicious cycle, really, because U.K. consumers are going to be cautious about spending because the future is uncertain. And they don't know, you know, will the economy go into recession? Am I going to lose my job? You know, should I really be splashing out on your purchases now? And similarly, businesses in the U.K. are holding off on investment because they don't know if consumers are going to be buying and so on and so forth. And so I think that's very possible. I mean, the U.K. doesn't have – the same demographic issues that Japan did and does, their population isn't as old or aging quite as fast, which also contributed to the kind of many years of stagnation in the Mm -hmm. Japanese economy. But because the UK has been open to all the other economies of the rest of Europe for so long, and post-Brexit, unless it takes a sort of Norway or Switzerland-esque form, will have more barriers between it and the economies that it trades with most. I think that's a very reasonable possibility.
0: Some of the, the younger population in the UK actually came in and it really has been the digital talent that has been fueling not just the UK, but on a global basis, the digital world we're in. What happens to that talent if, one, a lot of these businesses move operations to other places? Two is... They simply, just because the rules of Brexit can't, can't be there easily. Or three, it's just that their concerns for the economic malaise of it all means that they go elsewhere to live a different, vibrant life.
2: I think it shrinks. And I think the only issue right now is how fast will it shrink and ha- by how much will it shrink? Because a lot of that digital talent comes from the rest of the EU. But I think the bigger problem is that the future talent won't, think of moving to London first the way that they might have in the past. They might say, well, look, you know, a bunch of these other businesses are moving to Dublin or to Frankfurt or to Amsterdam or to Paris or whatever, or to Berlin, so I'm going to try one of those cities first rather than London has benefited a lot from being such an epicenter for both financial services and fintech and advertising and digital in general. And with whatever form Brexit takes, there will be some barriers to that that weren't there before. Now, there are lots of people who will say, yes, yes, but now the UK will have its own immigration policy. And so we can make sure that all the digital talent that we want from wherever, not just from the EU, will get visas. But of course, Applying for visas and things like this is a substantial barrier and can, depending on the cost and how much reliance you have to have on your employer to subsidize that cost or to sponsor you or whatever, it'll certainly be more of an impediment than it is today for young EU nationals who can just up and move.
0: Yeah, now there's an overt competition between the EU and the UK for talent, whereas it was somewhat muted by the idea it was one EU. Now the EU will put in other incentives for town to come to the Frankfurt, the Berlin, the Dublins, as you say. I mean, this is, this is not necessarily a purely amicable divorce. There's going to be competition. <laughs> at the, at the
2: moment, it's looking like a fairly acrimonious divorce, to be honest. Yeah.
0: Um, as divorces go. But no,
2: I, I think the, the thing is, right, even if the EU does nothing, to encourage digital talent to go other places. And they will, trust me, like, you know, for, for all the remaining 27 EU member states, anyone from anywhere in the EU can move anywhere else. So if I live in Greece, say, and I'm a very talented designer, and the economy in Greece isn't what I would like, and I'm not getting the kind of job offers that I would like, I can go anywhere else tomorrow. At where And I used to be able to go to the UK, and that probably would have been one of the first options I might have chosen. But, you know, absent Brexit. But once Brexit happens, and even now in the run up to Brexit, because people are uncertain as to what will happen, the rest of the EU may look more attractive just because you don't have any risk that you won't be able to stay or you won't be able to bring your partner or you won't be able to do any of these other things that you might wish.
0: And so one other role that London plays is as as the European hub for many international companies. What are you seeing in terms of companies coming in from the U.S. or others that that have and may not have forever large headqu- uh, European headquarters in London?
2: Um, I think if you already have a large European headquarters in London and you've invested a lot in it, obviously you have to make some. You'd have to make some painful choices if you were going to move it, which you do have companies doing, like the ones we talked about before. But I think if you're a, a U.S. company. Now, looking across the pond and saying, where should I set up my European headquarters? I can't imagine London would be in the running. Because you one of the I mean, London's attractive for many reasons, which you cited. And there's sort of labor law is more like labor law in the US and the legal system is more like the US legal system and on and on and on. But there are plenty of other options. So, you know, other European capitals are doing their very best to, and second cities too, are are doing their very best to make themselves as attractive as possible because they know that companies are going to need to either move or, you know, build, you know, a new headquarters or start their headquarters somewhere else altogether because it does not make sense to have your European headquarters in a country that's no longer in the European Union.
1: So, Laura, you had made mention of your, you know, companies having these Brexit plans. So is that something that is just table stakes right now that you're hearing that people are, have these plans in place? Or is this something, have people also been kicking that can down the road as as these deadlines have been nearing and then getting extended?
2: So many companies have been planning for this since the day after the results of the Brexit referendum were announced back in June of sixteen. And but there were a substantial cohort of companies that said, I don't know, can this really happen? All this preparation might be completely pointless. Maybe I'll do the minimum and kick the can down the road. So I was reading in the Dutch papers this weekend about the fears that the various uh, ministers and administrative departments here in the Netherlands have about oh my goodness, I am gonna. I feel like the minister or the department who cried wolf because I have been haranguing all of the businesses and leaders under my supervision since the referendum to get ready for Brexit and that we must be prepared. So their fear is the companies that have done the minimum, at, despite all the haranguing, you're going to look at them and go, ah, I don't know, they kick the can down the road for October. Maybe nothing will happen then either. And so it's a bunch of expense to prepare, so... I'm not going to bother because I'm not convinced this will really happen.
0: It's like the ghost of Y2K.
2: Yeah, it's a lot like the ghost of Y2K, boy, you cried wolf, you know, pick your favorite metaphor. But it's, in a way, even worse that we've got an additional six months because it's six months of nagging uncertainty. But humans, by human nature, we sort of get familiar with risk and then start accepting it. It's why everybody who's petrified of flying on airplanes gets in their cars every day, even though getting in your car is actually objectively far more dangerous. It's because we're more familiar with it because humans have been doing that for a really long time and so, and because we do it every day. And so the danger is that Brexit just becomes part of the background noise and the companies with plans will sort of start ignoring them and not update them and just assume they'll be able to do whatever they feel like doing. And the ones that have, Elected to move headquarters and things will forge ahead with it because, of course, they've already started, they've already incurred the expense. Companies that are thinking of starting a European headquarters are, of course, not going to put it in London because that wouldn't make any sense either, uh, other than if it's just to serve the UK market. But everybody else has a bunch of other sort of more boring and tedious behind-the-scenes things to do, like make sure that you're not transferring data from the rest of the EU into the UK anymore so that you'll be ready in the case of a new deal on the 31st of October. And the danger is that those projects that were reasonably well-advanced will just sort of start gathering dust.
0: And you may have mentioned earlier in this discussion, Laura, about the impact to data, both in the context of GDPR and just in the context of, you know, where data centers sit and how data can be leveraged. So when we get into like a different altitude at the company level and you are the CIO, what is that that you're you're trying to work through to be that good student that you described?
2: So what I'm trying to work through is that after the UK leaves the EU, it's not at all clear that the UK will be declared GDPR adequate, like I said before. And so this, Sort of The reasonable kind of cautious play here is to make sure that you are no longer transferring EU data to the UK unless you have implemented one of the kind of frameworks for transferring data outside of the European Union. So you have to kind of start treating the UK as a third country or in sort of legal parlance, as in it's no longer part of the union, so you have to treat it just like you would transferring data to the US or to anywhere else that isn't considered GDPR adequate. So like Canada and Switzerland both are. So ironically, after Brexit, you, you will be more able, without special provisions, to transfer European resident data to Canada or Switzerland than you will to transfer it to the UK. And there's every evidence that the GDPR adequacy decision may end up being quite political because, like you said, the divorce is not the most friendly divorce at this point. So I think if I'm the CIO right now, if I haven't done it already, in theory I should have done it already, but whatever, we are where we are. If you're a CIO and you haven't done this yet, you need to go and look at am I transferring EU data to the UK and UK data to the EU? And so – you have to you have to sort of look at all of those data flows and go okay what EU data is going into the UK do I either want to use one of the kind of contractual mechanisms, there's things called model contract clauses and binding corporate rules. Uh, you can listen to a podcast by my colleague Enzo about this from a while ago, if you want to know more about that kind of stuff. Um, you would want to use those things that you use to transfer EU data outside of the European Union to be transferring data to the UK to be on the safe side. And if you don't want to do that, then you have to start, preparing to only keep that European Union resident data somewhere else in the EU. So pick your favorite place and uh, rent yourself some capacity. Cloud is fine. Doesn't literally matter. All of the major cloud providers will provide you with various assurances that the data stays inside of the EU and not the UK, should you so wish, because they have prepared for these things as well. So there's lots to think about. And if you've got a big data center in the UK that you're currently using for your operations all over the EU, you are going to want to rethink that decision.
0: And do we see this as accelerating the movement to cloud because it simply makes these decisions or these transitions easier? Or do we see that having no impact at all on...
2: It may well do, because there's so much momentum to move things to and build new things in the cloud anyway, because if you're a CIO or CTO at the moment, your question is not, why should I do this in the cloud? But rather, why should I not do this in the cloud? So I think this will provide yet more kind of accelerant to that transition, but it's already moving pretty fast anyway.
0: So going back to the the discussion on talent, do you see this as CIOs either getting a deeper bench in terms of outsourcing partners or other partners so that they're insulated from sort of shocking talent moves? Or how do you see the CIO... Insulating themselves against whatever the ramifications of talent are.
2: So it depends a little bit on where their investments currently are. You could build a sort of flowchart for this uh, if you wanted. I think, and I'll try and kind of articulate that flowchart without a picture. So if you currently have a big technology and digital talent hub in the UK, probably in Greater London's in place, and you aren't planning on moving that hub outside of the UK because you are either primarily serving the UK market or you feel like you can do what you need to do still there, I think you'll have to employ a combination of strategies, which is one is make sure you keep the talent you have, right? Because a bunch of your current digital talent may well be not be people from elsewhere in the EU. In fact, it's very likely that they are. So make sure that you sat down with every one of those people and had them tell you what their plans are and figure out what their status is going to be so that you can support them. Because what you don't want is a bunch of people who you really need and want to stay handing in resignations because they're worried about their future in the UK. If you can help them, you should. The, the second part is about recruiting, and I think they you will just need better recruiting practices to make sure that you can bring in the people that you need. So you're going to have to do more visa issuance and working with the UK government than you're used to. And also uh, making sure that you have those relationships with external partners that can supply you with extra talent when you need it, because it may be harder for you to get the talent that you would ideally like on a permanent basis yourself. If you're in a different situation, which is you have a decent-sized technology hub in the UK, but you have or building one elsewhere in the EU anyway. Uh, which you may well have been doing because of cost, even before Brexit, because, of course, particularly if you're in, your, in Greater London, it's super expensive. And so you see companies starting up digital hubs in places like Barcelona that have talent and that are a lot cheaper. And so if you're in that situation, what you would do is accelerate your growth in the other location, wherever that is, and you know, keep your talent in the UK that you need happy, make clear to them that you'd be okay with them transferring, and you'll support them if they wish to transfer and then a third situation would be you have kind of a small innovation hub or something that you built in London and your major digital and tech operations are elsewhere. I think you look at potentially winding that hub down because it's you probably put it there so you could take advantage of the energy of the London digital scene and get the best talent out of startups and all of this. in the long run, the talent that you went to London in the first place with your innovation center to get will not be as likely to be in London with, you know, without agency from you. So you might as well build out that innovation hub somewhere else, like Berlin or like Amsterdam or, some, or Barcelona, someplace that has an interesting and thriving digital scene and wind the one in London down over time because it, over time, it's not going to deliver what you went there for.
0: So earlier in the podcast, you had mentioned that that London had become a hub of fintech and fintech being a really, truly important dynamic in, obviously, financial services, but broadly in all industries. What happens now with that fintech dynamic?
2: Okay, so one of the biggest fears that financial services companies based in the UK overall have, so both fintech and established firms, banks and you know, investment banks and so on, is that financial services firms doing business in the UK will lose access to the so-called passport rule that allows financial firms that are regulated in one member state of the EU to operate in every other member state of the EU without a bunch of special permissions and so on. So the that would be tremendously damaging for any fin, any fintech firm that started up in London that wanted to operate Without a whole bunch of new restrictions across the borders into the rest of the EU. So if you're a, if that's why you see all of these banks and investment firms and so on. Moving a bunch of operations to elsewhere in the EU because they're worried that they won't be able to serve their corporate customers and their individual customer elsewhere in the EU out of the U.K. after the exit of the U.K. from the European Union. And, of course, the fintech firms are all kind of small, nimble startups, uh, stereotypically. And so they started up in London because that's where the talent was and that's where the financial services expertise was. And that's where a lot of their kind of primary initial customers were. And so as those big financial firms move out of London, and as they have to assume that they're going to lose access to passporting rules to work throughout the rest of the European Union, that may not happen. The fintechs have to be looking at operating elsewhere. Even if they keep some of their operations in in the UK, they're going to need operations elsewhere so that they will be able to sell their services to their target customers throughout the rest of the European Union.
0: Laura, there's a lot of piece parts to Brexit, a lot of possible implications. What should come to the fore for business leaders as we look at a six-month delay?
2: As little as we want to spend the next six months thinking and talking about Brexit, having spent nearly three years thinking and talking about Brexit already, we have to make sure that we keep our planning front and center because no deal where all of a sudden none of the rules that have governed the relationship between communications and trade and operations between the UK and the rest of the EU apply is still very possible. So as little fun as we're all having, thinking and talking about this now, we have to keep it front and center until there's actually an agreement reached or the UK exits with no deal as they still might.
0: More to come. Thank you, Laura, for your time today.
1: Anytime. My pleasure. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.